Welcome to Sharing the Spectrum, an Autism Canada podcast, an engaging series of discussions about relevant topics, including parenting, relationships, employment, education, nutrition, and so much more. We look forward to introducing you to people from our ASD community and sharing their perspectives on life and autism. And now, please enjoy this episode of Sharing the Spectrum, an Autism Canada podcast. Hi there, this is Julie from Autism Canada. This episode of Sharing the Spectrum and Autism Canada podcast is hosted by Luke Zielinski. Luke is an Autism Canada ambassador and is also on the autism spectrum. Luke's going to be chatting with Jude Morrow, an autistic best-selling author, entrepreneur, philanthropist, and keynote speaker from Ireland. He's also written two books, Why Does Daddy Always Look So Sad? and Loving Your Place on the Spectrum. Enjoy this episode. And thanks for listening. Here I am with uh, Jude Morrow, and I'm going to ask some questions. So we're speaking about your book, right? Do you want to tell us what your book is called? My latest book is called Loving Your Place in the Spectrum, a Neurodiversity Blueprint. And what Loving Your Place in the Spectrum is, is a uh, collection of the most commonly asked questions uh, regarding autism, but they're answered from the autistic point of view, not just from my point of view, but from the point of view of uh, other proudly autistic contributors as well, which I suppose gives the, the the book a magic shine. You said this book is a compilation of frequently asked questions. Who would you recommend read this book? It's it's hard not to say everybody. Look, that's the difficult part. It's hard not to say absolutely everybody because whenever the the word autism is introduced into anything a certain fear seems to be brought out of people and what i wanted my objective of the book to be was you know to remove that fear and for people's minds to go to a more positive space because whether it's parents at home or kids in schools or employers in workplace settings whenever the word autism is mentioned it can often promote and project a feeling of fear, which shouldn't exist. And the reason why that fear exists is because there's a lot of negative propaganda about what autism is not and the negatives uh, that are attached to it. And I thought that I would break the mold and put out um, a more vibrant, energetic and positive view of what being autistic is. So uh, I know it's cliche to say absolutely everybody should read this book, but I'm going to stick with it and say, yes, everybody should read this book. Well, that's a that's a fair point. I mean, autism is one of those things that you hear and there's so many different things many people think about. Most of them aren't really positive, are they? No, they're not. They're terrible. And you hear all the usual cliches and stuff that like autistic kids have no social skills, autistic kids and adults, you know, can't, you know, communicate properly and have an over-reliance on order and everything else. And I'll tell you a story. I'll tell you a story because this, 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 this is current from this week. Uh, I went out and bought a new car and whenever I was young, what I used to do was line up like my toy cars on the windowsill of my parents' home. Uh, I love lining things up. I love a sense of order. And it was so stigmatized when I was young. It was called inappropriate play. But whenever I went to this car showroom on Monday to pick up my new Alfa Romeo, 
I noticed that all the cars in the showroom were lined up and I thought, wow, this isn't put out there as a disordered showroom or an inappropriate showroom. I mean, even in car parks or parking lots in North America, you see all the cars lined up outside where they need to be. And that's not viewed as negatively as what a child would be whenever they're being lined up on a windowsill or a table or on the floor or anything else. So that's one of the the things that I want to bring to light for people. Kids are so stigmatized. Whenever I, I, I grew up in 1990s and early 2000s Ireland, and autism wasn't something that a lot of people, if anybody, actually talked about. It was, you know, a very kind of new concept um, over here. It wasn't really in the Irish public consciousness back then. It was starting to creep in, but I'm starting to think maybe that wasn't such a bad thing because, I mean, autism has been stigmatized in North America since the 1950s where it, it wasn't really as well known or talked about on, on these shores as, as they were over there. And I can say now that in the in the decade that we're in, the time that we're in, the year that we're in, 2022, I think things are a little better, but are perhaps... Not as good as it could about. be. Not as good as it could be. I think you're right. It's, uh, and, and, that, and that's what I, I want to do like every day, you know, through you know, the work that I do outside of, of writing books. And I've highlighted that very clearly in this book is that we still have a long way to go. And I wanted to put down like a blueprint or a starting point of which to get to a place where I think uh, the autistic community and families and caregivers and teachers will be in a much better position. Yeah, we can say we're trying to be positive all we want, but at the same time, we can't really erase the fact that society as we know it, has a long way to go before accepting people who are different as they are instead of trying to subtly push them into a mold or try to suppress them. Yeah, like there, there's a big industry out of this look. Like, I mean, it's, I mean, I mean, the autism industry is worth billions worldwide and it's founded on one principle. It's like fear. It's like these kids and adults and young people need to be a certain way to survive in life. And thankfully now, with a, a, a lot of people having different perspectives, is people are starting to see beyond that now. People are starting to be more accepting. They're starting to embrace that everybody is individual, unique, and diversity and variety is the spice of life instead of a, a one-size-fits-all solution. But... There, there's a there's a lot more that can be done. I think the way teachers are trained, the way professionals are trained, I think just to understand and accept that people can be naturally different. And if that were to happen, I think the outcomes would be much better for the actually autistic community out, out living in the world every day. I agree. Just for the perspective for our listeners, current school system, at least we know it is in North America, first came up with in the in the mid-1800s to create factory workers. Just give them the basic skills so that they could go out, make cars, steel beams, and other stuff. And we still have that today. It's it's almost centuries old at this point. And in a factory worker environment, I, there's really no place to be unique. Yeah, there, there, there isn't a place to be unique because if you think about the way school is set up, where, I mean, back then, I mean, schools were uh, set up to 
railroad kids into the different industries, depending on what country they're in, where that's where the saying railroading someone into something comes from, because uh, in a lot of continental Europe and maybe even the US, I'm not sure, is that people were often groomed, for want of a better word, to uh, to join the railroad industry, hence the term being railroaded into something, where I think that exists even now. If you think about, about the way the school system is set up, like you have a teacher in a classroom and I mean, in my classes, whenever I was growing up, there was maybe 30, 35 in a class. And not all 35 people in a class are going to have the same learning style, the same understanding of certain things. And everybody's going to learn in different ways. But the way people are being taught is the same, where it's one teacher at the top of the class giving all the information and everybody has to do with it what they will. And the people who match the teacher's learning and teaching style tend to be the ones that do well. And I think that in global school systems, that's where talent is lost. Because for me personally, I would say in some areas, I can be quite a slow learner where people have to show me how to do it. Where if you give me like a pamphlet or a one pager and all these other silly kind of cliche things that go around in business, Sometimes I'm like, yeah, but can we have a quick 15-minute Zoom call so you can show me how this works or how I can fit this or how this can fit me and, and vice versa? And a lot of the time, accommodations like that are pretty easy. I mean, I'm, I'm a grown man now, but imagine for a child in a school that may not have the same access to the help and support that they need that best suits the way they learn. It's really bad. I mean, for me personally... Uh, when I still went to brick and mortar school, my teachers did the best with what they could, but but the school system and the school I went to was kind of a, a backwater part of the school division. So the system did what it could to help me, but it wasn't enough and they couldn't really get any other help. And it was just me and my mom fighting for, you know, supports for stuff like that. And that's an experience shared by, by so many different people is, I mean, kids in a classroom may not learn in the same way all the time. I think the, the best thing that teachers can do is to try and form an individual relationship with each and every child where a group model doesn't always work, where for me and a lot of the people that I work with in a coaching capacity are much better in a one-to-one -one because I myself am much better in a one-to-one. -one. Like whenever I, I went to university, there was a lot more scope for some additional one-to-one -one learning that you don't really get in the secondary school system or the high school system. It's just not there because often, and it's pretty much the same in every school district is that there, there are more kids than what there are school places or uh, even capacity in classrooms can get very, very high. And it's all down to being able to form relationships with each individual child. And I think if that's invested in and that's put forward as a progressive kind of method of schooling, that there could even be two teachers in a classroom where there is going to be different kids that have different learning styles. 
And, you know, it means that nobody slips through the net. I think that would be a positive move. Even if we shrink the class sizes, that might help in some areas, right, where it's possible. Because sometimes that's not not always possible. Oh, I mean, it's it's not. And it's tough because I know it's easy in autism advocacy all the time to say, oh, this should happen and that should happen. And I mean, it's true. I think it's fair to say that in a lot of cases, schools do their best with what they have. You know, they try their best and a lot of them are underfunded and under-resourced. And it's very, very tough for them to move forward and get any meaningful outcomes for the kids in the classrooms. I know that's hard, but I think it it needs a lot of action from the schools to say, you know, this is a better way. You know, there are a, many different kids with many different brains and wirings and ways of living and doing things that the method of just one teacher standing in front of a classroom full of kids is more exclusionary than inclusive. I think if that was to start, we'd, we would be on a good path. We'd be on a, a path to something much more positive, I think. Yeah. So what do we, so when we're on school, school is a staple of society. What do we need to do to fully accept autistic people into our society? I know I have some strong beliefs about this because I am on the spectrum. I I think the first thing that parents and teachers and all of society needs to do to be more accepting and inclusive is to learn that being autistic is a perfectly valid way of living where it's not a disordered or broken way of living. It's just different. And what happens is whenever people are hurt or different or perhaps not quite like most other people, I think a lot of people go into their good nature and try to help and try to fix and try to make things all better from their point of view. And and whilst it's very well-meaning, it can have more damage than than positive. So I, I think it's the way teachers are trained because and the way my training business operates is that it's autism training from the autistic point of view and not only from the autistic point of view but it seeks to highlight that a lot of people have unconscious negative bias when it comes to autism and autistic kids and whenever that negative bias goes it means that better bonds and relationships can be formed at classroom level so I think that would be the first thing is to make sure that People are aware that being autistic is okay and it's a perfectly valid way to exist and shouldn't be fixed or cured in any way. I think it's also another problem that people in positions of influence see uh, problems that autistic people have and feel the need to talk about them without really knowing what they're talking about. How do you think that can change going forward everybody has strengths everybody has things that they're good at everybody has talents and the the sad thing is when it comes to us false evidence can start to appear real that i certainly grew up as somebody who wasn't very confident because i wasn't allowed to be because it was always you know jude can't do this jude can't do that jude can't jude can't And eventually it became very, very real. And 
I think if that was to be stopped, because I certainly, I, I think that the notion of, uh, you know, curing autism and autistic people, I think it's one of the most abhorrent things. It's a perfectly valid way to live. And, you know, yes, while some people may need more support in certain areas, I think it's still, it should be the done thing that people are supported and guided and encouraged and embraced rather than being made out to be deficient and in need of being completely repaired for want of a better term. Like that's a problem too, is that autistic people are portrayed as defective in like the worst cases. Yeah, it is. It is a real, real problem. And I suppose that's, that's why I do what I do every day. I, I want to, I want to show that, you know, being autistic doesn't have to be something that people should be afraid of, but can be something to be celebrated and cherished. Don't get me wrong. Is my view, can other people interpret it as being slightly naive? Yes, but at the same time, if it means that more uh, kids and young adults can can grow and go out into the world feeling slightly more proud and confident and happy in who they are, then for me, I would view that mission as a success. Yeah, that's that's true. And while we're on this, the stigma around autism has led many to stop seeking a diagnosis or even deny that they might have autism. I know a family member of mine, it was only after that me, me and my mom really pushed him, did he finally start to accept the fact that he may have some sort of autism how can we encourage more people who who do their own research and believe that they may have autism to get a diagnosis or seek a diagnosis well seeking a diagnosis can be a powerful thing it can be uh validating for experience because i mean in my current business what we actually do is we we offer autism and ADHD assessments at a much lower price point and a much faster turnaround time because the waiting lists and costs for diagnoses can be way out of reach for most families. And we wanted to have something that could get people diagnosed and receive the supports that they so urgently require much, much more quickly. And getting a diagnosis has plenty of i suppose advantages is that you know it's a validating experience and can get the help and support that you need but as a diagnosis for everybody no i i've never met anybody who has believed themselves or their kids to be autistic and been wrong i've never ever had that experience i mean my parents were right about me i'm sure your parents were right about you (laughs) i mean that's the way it tends to go is that Nobody believes themselves or their kids to be autistic and being wrong. But across the world, the law sits in such a way that a diagnosis is needed to access certain things, whether that's housing or welfare or additional supports at work or college and so on. So those would be the real advantages, you know, to getting a a diagnosis. But a diagnosis doesn't define anybody. It doesn't, uh, it's not a death sentence. It's not you know, the the realization of one's worst fears, it's much more profound than that, than it's, I suppose, some form of discovery of an identity that may have uh, um, eluded you for quite some time. 
Yeah, I guess diagnosis too has this sort of stigma that yeah. uh, that like that's also something that turns off people from getting a diagnosis. It's, yeah, a, it's like of... such a it's such a demonized thing. It's like you're getting a diagnosis for that, and it could also be like you just don't like being labeled as well. Yeah, it's a it's a very stigmatizing thing. It's and and that's just the overall autism stigma that exists. And I mean that that's why I salute and applaud even even the work that you're doing like with this podcast and everything else because you know telling your story and giving your perspective and if anything reassurance that being autistic is okay then it's a good thing it can only be it can only be a positive thing i actually recorded a, a podcast of my own uh yesterday um which actually discussed the power of telling stories and you know whilst i tell my story and lots of people out there tell theirs it might actually encourage people to go on their own path of seeking the supports and the validation that they deserve. Uh, I've talked about all of these. I want to ask, what led you to write this book you're writing or write your first book? Well, the, the first book, I, I would love to say, it's probably a very, it would be very, very fashionable of me to say, I wrote my first book to inspire autistic kids, teens, adults and parents everywhere. But it, it really wasn't. It, I actually wrote my first book because I've always been a bookworm. I've always loved to read and I always dabbled in a bit of writing. But I wanted to, to have a book written by the time I was 30. And I didn't know what that book was, whether it would be a fiction book, whether it would be a nonfiction book or whatever. And it came about by accident. And it just, it whenever it went out there into the world, it just took off and it, it circled the planet multiple times, and I suppose it sort of catapulted me into the advocacy limelight, which I've been in ever since, and I've loved every second of it. And, you know, want to use that platform to create powerful change. And, of course, with the first book, I've only been alive for 31 years, so I didn't have a lot more life left to write about after the first book came out. And I went on a speaking tour after the first book came out, and there was a lot of questions and I always I collated them like data, like data collection of autism's most uh, asked questions or the, the questions that people leveled at me most, which were things like I'm on a waiting list for a diagnosis. What do I do now? Or things like, you know, relationships when one par partner is autistic and the other is not uh, going through the college experience. You know, what was that like? So I thought I would give my take and my advice and nuggets of gold on those certain life areas, as well as having contributions from other people. Can you give us a sneak peek about the part you're most excited with in your book? I'll tell you what, and this is a wonderful story, and he won't mind me telling it. He's, an, he's a proud Canadian himself. His name is Adrian Newcastle. And the, the, this just happened by fate. There's no other way to describe it, where... Whenever my first book came out, I needed a narrator for the audiobook, and Adrian Newcastle came forward and was hired to do the uh, the voice acting for the audiobook for the first book. And the first book came out; it was a huge success on all platforms. And Adrian reached out to me, and he told me that whenever he was reading the manuscript for my first book, 
it was very similar to his own life experience. And he went on a diagnosis journey of his own and was diagnosed autistic as well after this. So me telling my story encouraged Adrian to go to seek a, a diagnosis of his own to kind of confirm what he felt was true to him. And he actually wrote that story down in this book as well. It going on that journey as an adult, uh, as a as as a grown up, for want of a better term, uh, going through this journey, and that's what I've really loved about the book is you know something that I've said or written down has prompted positive action from somebody, and it's all I can ever hope for in anything that I write, even if it helps one person or it encourages one person to put their best foot forward. Then it for me, it's always going to be uh, mission accomplished. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, autism is one of those things where, you know, when you hear it, you mostly think about, like, children, right? That that just seems to be the norm, especially, like, that, uh, like, just the first thing that comes to mind is a child with autism. And people, you know, f- uh, people seem to forget that. We grow up. Sometimes, I mean, I would say I'm an autistic child, but I'm 31 and have children of my own. And a partner and everything else like it's the the average life expectancy like across the world is what 82 years old or something where most autistic people on the planet are adults because you're only an you're only a, an autistic child from when you're zero to 18 and you know we live a lot longer than that so there's far more adults out there in the world than what there are children so that's something that's quite poignant because most of the marketing materials and information that you'll see in the world depicts autistic children, but then most of us are over 18. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's quite interesting that, that that's what the global view of autism is, but that's starting to change. I know from personal experience that I've, fa- uh, I'm only, I'm only 16. So I haven't, uh, but I faced a lot of challenges, for being autistic what was uh, uh you're a lot uh, you're a bit older than me you've been around for longer so what are some challenges you've personally faced from childhood to adulthood um what challenges did i face there was actually quite a number of them um i think it was because i always knew that i was good at stuff but the things that i maybe wasn't so good at compared to my peers was always highlighted more where it was. I just loved the life of Kent's. You know, Jude can't do this. Jude can't do that. Jude can't socialize. Jude can't communicate, and so on and so on. Where over time, that became my truth internally. That's what I thought of myself. That's what I genuinely believed. And that's whenever I became an adult. Whenever I reached eighteen. I thought in my head, holy crap, I can't do anything. You know, I, I I cannot and will not be able to survive in this world because I can't do anything that society thinks I should be good at. So what I had to do was pretend to be good at them. And to say that that plan didn't really go quite well is an understatement because it didn't. And it was only in my you know mid to late 20s whenever I decided to make peace and accept myself for who I was, that good things started to happen and are continuing to happen now. So, I mean, the, my ultimate takeaway is whenever 
autistic people, young and old, accept themselves as early as possible, that's when good things happen. For our listeners, you might have heard the term masking. Um, mm-hmm. It's where uh, an autistic person would try to blend in by pretending to be like the rest. And I know at school I had to mask because uh, none of the kids understood it. They only stood it from jokes that their parents told and from stuff that they saw uh, on their own internet searches. <laughs> uh, I mean, the internet is the most powerful and debilitating tool at the same time because it's it's just a melting pot of, of, of misinformation, isn't it? Like, it's really, really tough. Um it's just, uh, I mean, I, I could go on forever about this in its own right. Like, the idea that the, the internet can be a force for good and a force for bad at, a, at exactly the same time. But what, what I would ultimately love to do is to have, you know, the internet and all things, you know, awash with positive information rather than all the negative stuff because it doesn't serve anybody. Like, highlighting negativities all the time is only going to promote fear and whenever people live in fear that's when autistic folks like us just don't reach our full potential and whenever we do and can't are given the environment at home and at work and among our support networks to be the best that we can be that's when the best of us comes out and yeah and stays out and i i think Whilst I'm not a fan of outright censorship to a certain extent, it's kind of back to the topic of of hate speech. I mean, if there's more empowering information than there are kind of negative informations, because you, you still have people kind of flying under the autism awareness banner where everybody listening to this will know what autism is. Everybody's aware now. You know, we have to move on to that next stage. And I think you know, the kind of evolution of the movement, that's where things are going. Most places on the internet are completely anonymous, and it just seems to be human nature to just be, like, negative. Yeah, it is, and that's down to unconscious negative bias, where, you know, being negative and cautious and overly careful, it's like an ingrained survival mechanism, and it's it's one of the flaws of the human brain where we're taught to protect ourselves so much. Um, and I suppose it did have a juice back, you know, back in the, the dark ages, whenever, um, you know, we needed to stop ourselves being gored by woolly mammoths or eaten by bears or things like that. But it's like that survival instinct that we needed to keep us alive all those millennia ago is still in our heads and it's more harmful than it is positive keeping it there. Yeah. So it's like retraining the brain to see the positive and the empowering stuff, not the negative stuff that causes people to protect themselves, sometimes unnecessarily. Nobody ever said evolution was fast. Like, like it, it's just not a fast process. But education can be a faster process. So I think that's where it lies, is education and, you know, reminding... Sorry us that you know we don't have to be afraid or negative about them anymore about yeah. differences exactly it's about it's about changing mindsets it's about 
It's about opening discussion. It's about telling your story. It's about showing people that there's a different way of seeing things. And whenever people start to see the more positive information than you know the the negative stereotypical information, then we're only going to improve. We're only going to evolve, and we're only going to get closer together. And I suppose the quicker that happens, you know, the the better things will be for sure. So what were some supports that you had along your journey? Well, I whenever I was at school, I had a classroom assistant with me pretty much right the way through the school journey. And at the time, I didn't appreciate it one bit because nobody else had one. And I, I felt like I stood out too much. But looking back, with a more mature view, I think it it certainly helped me in a lot of ways where I did get to have some additional one-to-one time. I did get to have some additional kind of learning and things that really helped me, especially in preparation for exams and things like that, where whenever I kind of went on to university, this is whenever I was studying to be a social worker, the schedule when it comes to university is way, way different than it is secondary school and it's a lot more flexible. And I suppose it allowed me to play to my own strengths much, much more than what I suppose high school would have allowed me to. Um, Whenever it comes to, to work and stuff like that, I didn't really have any and it's not because they weren't there, they weren't available. It's because I didn't really ask for them because there was still that kind of stigma, but I mean, what I hear now is that more young adults are becoming more open to asking for support and it seems to be working very well for them. And I mean, I would always encourage that if if people need help and support, then, you know, don't be afraid to ask for it uh, because it's never always the case that people don't want to provide support. It's often people do want to provide support, but it's just getting people to come forward and Uh, and ask for it yeah yeah so your book uh, your new book is about frequently asked questions about autism and i know i for one am very uh fascinated by the stereotypes that autism has accumulated over over the years of recorded history and I want to know your opinion on some of the stereotypes and how we can influence the collective consciousness to uh, abandon these stereotypes. Well, I think the first thing that people have to do is start listening to autistic people and listening to autistic experiences. Uh, the The narrative has been mainly governed by professionals and, you know, even parents who are on the outside of being autistic and looking in at it, where I I always say nobody can really understand what the autistic experience is like unless one lives with it, you know, every second of of every day. And I don't mean living with it, you know, in the same house. I mean living, you know, being autistic yourself every single day. And more and more autistic people are telling their stories. And I mean, even a podcast like this, where there's an autistic interviewer and an autistic interviewee, you know, both coming together and talking about an experience publicly, like that wouldn't have been heard of, you know, 10, 15 years ago. I mean, I'm sure it existed in some spaces, but maybe not so much to the prevalence that it exists now. So, and 
I always encourage people to tell their story where I thought at one stage that my story wasn't very interesting. And I suppose on face value, it isn't. But a lot of people were able to relate to it. A lot of people were able to resonate with it. And a lot of people found comfort in it, knowing that there was somebody else going through the same thing. Like, I haven't achieved or or done anything overly remarkable or unique. But what I have done is something, and a lot of things that are that people can relate to, because your story and anybody's story for anybody who's listening, your story could really, really influence change in somebody. It could spark an idea that could change the world forever. And that's what should happen is people should tell their stories. And whenever these stories are told, people should listen to them. Yeah, there's this kind of uh, opinion or, I guess, narrative that people like to push that in order to make any sort of changes, you know, you have to have you have to be like, I don't know, Elon Musk or Bill Gates. You got you got to be all of these people. You got to have this sort of influence when really you can tell your story online and it will spark changes in a lot of people. Yeah, like, and, and and here's the thing. A lot of people, you know, say, you know, you, you need to have superpowers and, you know, all of this, where I don't say you, you need to have a superpower, but certainly what you need to be is happy. You know, it's one of the most profound questions I was ever asked by, actually by a podcast interviewer, where, I, you know, they'd said things like, you know, you've got a very, very successful and results-driven coaching business, couple of books out, a couple of TED Talks, you know, a couple of speaking tours and stuff. Uh, and basically what my question to you is, Jude, are you happy? Where it's such a profound question, are you happy? Where I wasn't asked, well, what were your superpowers and what amazing un- unearthly things did you, ha- did you have to do to achieve those things? It was, are you happy? And I was able to say comfortably, you know what? Yes, I am. I was able to do these things because I was happy and I was confident and I wanted to. Where that that to me is the ultimate, I suppose, superpower. It's being happy, you know, exercising happiness. You know, it's not about have, being able to calculate things at superhuman speed or being able to invent, you know, incredibly innovative things. Not everybody's going to be able to do that. And I suppose it can bring a lot of pressure, but... It's all about being happy. Are you happy? And I think, you know, if you're happier, you'll feel a lot more satisfaction in life than maybe people who, from a public view, achieve an awful lot, but maybe aren't as happy. Yeah, that that's good. That's a good one. I mean, yeah, it's true. How old were you when you were diagnosed with autism? 11. I was, I was 11, yeah, and even now, it's it's getting better. Where That was still that early for 2001, uh, especially over here. That the must have been like, would, would have been been like groundbreaking, almost. Almost, yeah. I mean, it, was, it wasn't a, a diagnosis. It was very often given or discussed or talked about. So, I mean, yeah, it was very, very... It was very different, you know, it's very new, you know, it's, it, it was not radical, but 
I mean, uh, 11 was when I was formally diagnosed, but I wasn't actually told until I was uh, 18 or so because there was so much negative information. I suppose my parents protected me from it and probably right that they did, I would say, looking back on it, because there wasn't a lot of autistic voices and positivity that existed in the world back then. And I suppose what my kind of modus operandi is, is to be the kind of positive change and role model that my parents kind of didn't have or couldn't look to for inspiration. And and I mean, and you're doing exactly the same look with this podcast. Acceptance of autism isn't new in the grand scheme of things. No. It's not it's not new, but here's an interesting thought. Is it's it is believed that Einstein was autistic, right? Where I've I always say, and I make a point of saying it in every um you know, every interview that I do, I even say it in stage in all of my tours, is that, I mean, if Einstein was born today, right, if Einstein was born today in 2022, the chances are we wouldn't have relativity, we wouldn't have the photoelectric effect, you know, we wouldn't have a lot of the amazing discoveries and hypotheses that Einstein came up with, because somebody probably would have said, to him now now little albert you need to stop obsessing about space and time and the nature of reality and everything else so sometimes it leads me to wonder are we really any further forward in some areas i like to think that we are but are well-meaning people who want to in air quotes help actually hindering autistic talent more i haven't got a firm answer to that question in my mind but it would be interesting to get a lot of perspectives even from your listeners to see what they feel about that Yeah, I mean, my perspective is that well-meaning people hold us back, whether intentionally or not, it doesn't matter. I have some strong thoughts about this. It really makes me uh, upset when someone talks down to me and talks and speaks for me. It's like, no, thank you. I can speak for myself. Yeah. And there are those people, like, autism is so varied. There are those people who who legitimately, who literally can't speak for themselves, but they can still communicate in other ways. So you may need to speak, communicate what they need to someone who is not educated, but most of the time, even my nonverbal, like, peers in, in the autism, autistic spectrum they can still communicate what's on their mind. Yeah, of course. We're, the, and look, this is no word of a lie. This happened to me on tour. I was on tour of the States in November. And there was somebody ha- had a, had asked me like a question. It was something like, you know, about the book signing part afterward and, and stuff like that. This was at one of the venues. And the, somebody had said, Oh, Jude, you know, would you like it set up this way? And just as I was about to say, yeah, that's absolutely fine. Don't worry. Somebody said, oh, no, no, Jude doesn't like crowds. And I was like, no, I'm okay. You know, if things like book signings, you know, it's laid out, you know, that way and stuff like that, where people sometimes do that even to me, where it's like, whoa. But I know it's very innocent and it's well-meaning and I wouldn't cause an argument with somebody over it. But the, the truth is, is that people still have it in their minds that you know autistic people need spoken over and that's one of the most precious gifts in the world that i try to 
encourage everyone to develop, which is the the real, real good tool and skill of self-advocacy. Can you let us know where you can find your book and can you let us know how our listeners can connect with you? Absolutely. My my two books, uh, Why Does Daddy Always Look So Sad? and my new book, Loving Your Place in the Spectrum, uh, can be found in all major online retailers, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, IndieBound, um, can be found pretty much uh, everywhere. My site is www.neurodiversity-training.net or judemorrow.com. You can connect with me on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. I'm very, very easy to find. And I just want to say as well at the, the bottom of the podcast, look, thank you so much for having me on. And uh, I certainly hope that uh, uh, we, won't, we won't be strangers. We, we, will, we will chat again for sure. Yeah, hopefully we'll chat again soon. Absolutely. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure to be here. And I, I can't right. thank you enough for having me on. All right. Thank you for being here. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us today. Stay tuned for more episodes of Sharing the Spectrum and Autism Canada podcast. The beautiful music you heard is from Bruce Pethrick. Bruce is a neurodiverse musician and friend of Autism Canada. You can check out more of his music on his website at brucepetrick.com. Our executive producer is Barbara Patton. Julie Perkis is our producer. Additional thanks to the Autism Canada team, including Tafari Anthony, Shannon Zielinski, Dominique Payment, Mariana Curick, and Earl Zielinski. For more information about Autism Canada, don't forget to visit us at autismcanada.org. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube.